This is the Build Wealth Canada show, episode number 61. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hi, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today's guest is someone that has been, in a way, mentoring me without even knowing it in the field of financial planning. And I say mentoring because I've learned so much from him just by listening to his podcast for years at this point. And his name is Roger Whitney, who is known as the Retirement Answer Man. He's been a certified financial planner for over 25 years. And the one caveat that I will say is that he is in the United States. And so in this episode, I think the knowledge and best practices that he shares, and I translate it so that it's applicable and relevant to us Canadians too. In this episode, we talk a lot about how we can set our investments up so that we can live off them in retirement, whether it's a traditional retirement or an early retirement. And we cover the important subject of how to stress test our investment portfolio so that we can ensure that we don't run out of money in our retirement and also to see if we actually do have enough to retire. Now, two episodes ago on episode 59, I had Jason Heath on the show, uh, also a really good financial planner. And on there, we talked about living off investments using a total portfolio strategy. So if you haven't listened to that, I suggest you check it out over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 59, which is the number 59. Now, on this episode with Roger, though, we talk about an alternative strategy called the bucket strategy, which I actually personally feel more comfortable with, not to say that... You know, his strategy or Jason's strategy is better than the other. It's very much a personal preference thing. So definitely give these episodes a listen as they'll really inform you of some of the different ways that you can structure your investments so that you can live off them once you hit your financial independence number. Before we jump into the interview, one quick thing that I wanted to mention about accepting sponsors on the show that you hear from time to time is that before I bring on a sponsor, I do actually use their product or service to make sure that it's something that I would actually feel comfortable recommending to friends and family. So I do thoroughly use everything that I actually recommend. And if I'm not happy with it, I don't accept them as a sponsor on the show. So I just wanted to let you know about that as I don't think I have ever actually mentioned the screening process test that every sponsor actually goes through before they become a sponsor on the show. So with that said, we do have a new sponsor on the show that I had a really good experience with. And it's a service that lets you check and monitor your credit score for free. So my question to you is, do you actually know your credit score? So we all know that checking your credit score can be a pretty nerve wracking process as it's an important indicator of your overall credit health. And this is precisely why checking your credit score is so important. So your credit score might actually end up being a deciding factor in whether you'll be approved for a personal loan, a car loan, or a mortgage. And having a good credit score will make it easier to do all those things. Now, knowing your credit score is really the first step to understanding and improving it. And with Borwell, you can actually get your Equifax credit score for free. In under three minutes, you'll actually be able to access your credit score and your full credit report. And it is absolutely free, which is fantastic. So I've personally gone through Borowell to check my credit score and it was so much easier and faster than how I used to check my credit score. So obviously checking your credit score periodically is important, even if you aren't looking for a loan because there's things like identity theft happening all the time and companies getting hacked where your credit card information may get stolen, things like that. And so you really do want to make sure that there's nobody out there that has stolen your information and is now basically wreaking havoc on your credit score, making it really difficult for you to get things like a mortgage or a loan or making it so that the rates that you are getting on these loans are much higher than what you could get if your credit score was a lot better. 
So I definitely remember in the past with other companies, I had to either pay to see my credit score or I could get it for free using snail mail, which basically took forever and was really annoying in terms of all the forms that I had to fill out. And then you have to wait for you know the mail to get there, to get to them and then send things back. And it was really, really annoying. But what I really liked about Borowell was that, well, one, it was all free. And two, it was really fast because it's all online. So I just put it in my information and I got my credit score right away. And I got the full report and I got to see the breakdown and all of that and I could very quickly verify to make sure that everything on my credit score is actually accurate and so that there wasn't any sort of identity theft or you know anything like that taking place. So Borwell is 100% a Canadian company uh, and they're basically their single goal in mind is to help Canadians make great decisions about credit. So I definitely suggest you check them out as why wouldn't you want to make sure that nobody is tampering with your financial accounts while at the same time improving your credit score to get better rates, which they basically offer you suggestions on how you can do that. So uh, yeah, definitely check them out. It's over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. So just S-C-O-R-E. If you go there, it will basically take you to their page and you'll be able to get your credit score for free. So that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. Now, as usual, I want to give a big thanks to EQ Bank for sponsoring the show. I'm definitely still offering out my guide for free on the top ETFs in Canada for anybody that opens up a free account with them using my link. And I'll be offering this pretty much indefinitely and I'll be updating the guide every single year. So even if you know, you're listening to this years from now, you can still sign up and I will give you the latest guide for that particular year. Now, I've been using them for years, even before they became a sponsor of the show. And the main reason is that they have one of the highest interest savings rates in Canada. They are currently offering 2.3%, which is more than double what the major banks are offering. It's also free to sign up and keep an account with them so you're not paying a monthly fee like you do with many of the other banks out there. And you also get unlimited transactions, unlimited interact e-transfers, and you can take out your money at any time if you need it. There's no minimum balances or anything like that. And so because of those reasons, I've been with them ever since they launched in Canada years ago, and it's where I keep my entire emergency fund and spending money as well, and pretty much the safety portion of my portfolio. So basically, just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in ETFs goes directly into my EQ Bank account to earn me that high interest. So to get the free high interest account and the free guide, on the top ETFs in Canada, just go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. Open the free account and once you're done, forward any email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll send you the full comprehensive guide for free. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ to open an account, then forward me any email from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and I'll email you the free in-depth guide. You do have to use that link, that buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ link in order to get the bonus. All right, so enjoy. Thank you so much for supporting that show in that way. And now let's get into the episode. So, so great to have you on. I'm a big fan of your podcast uh, for a long, long time, listening to it a lot. It, it's helped us uh, a lot with our financial planning on, on our side. Um, so yeah, let, let, let's get right into the questions because I'd love to pick your brain on some of these uh, things. I know we're experienced, I know you're in the US, but in Canada, you know, we experience a lot of the same sort of questions and issues and challenges uh, that you guys do. There's some unique ones, but I figure we can focus on uh, sort of the ones where they're common both in Canada and the US. So let's say you created a comprehensive, 
financial plan with a client. Uh, you give them the green light to retire and, and they do so. But then a year later, we run into a, another 2008 scenario or just a really large stock market decline. When you do your annual or semi-annual review with the client, what's the process that you go through? How do you crunch the numbers to determine if they are still okay or if they need to make some adjustments? You know, the first thing I would challenge a little bit is the idea of creating a comprehensive financial plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that ends up being this huge one-time project that seems like it takes so much work and so much time. As soon as it's done, you want to forget about it and just memorialize it and put it on the shelf, Um, which in some ways hurts you in the dealing with the fluidity of life and planning. So what I would say is we don't create comprehensive financial plans. We create plans. And I think of it as an ongoing project that you constantly have to iterate, which means it takes a lot less time up front. And it also means that there is a regular schedule of what I call little conversations or huddles, so you can keep collecting new data, not just about the markets and interest rates and all that stuff, but about life and spending and goals and everything. So you can iterate much more quickly than I think most financial planning does. Mm -hmm. And the reason I give that is because part of that is forecasting cash flow spending, which uh, is impacted by, say, a 2008 event, which we, you know, that's our boogeyman in for this generation in terms of markets. Uh, It also gives us much more flexibility to make lots of little adjustments and take advantages of things that can protect us even if something like that never happened. So as an example, I remember having these conversations prior to 2008 with some some clients in that we had done so well in the markets, not because of anything fancy, just it was a nice tailwind that – using the tools that we use, says, wow, we don't need to take this much risk. Our confidence level has risen because of the benefit of these markets. We have some choices to make. And those choices in this instance, I recall, were we can start saving less money because we've had this tailwind or we can negotiate back in some goals that we had to sacrifice in the original iteration or we could take less investment risk because we don't need to try to reach a little bit for more returns. And in each instance, someone is going to choose something that's important to them. And in a few instances, part of that was taking less investment risk. And that ended up being a big benefit when 08 came. And I looked like a genius for even suggesting it of, wow, we took less investment risk when things were still good because we had an iterative process to actually have the conversation in the first place. Sure. Now, I'm sure though there were some clients where let's say you have maybe you and other planners, you had that conversation. Okay, markets are doing great. Things are going great. Instead of taking less risk, I'm sure some clients said, hey, I, I'm already in retirement. Markets are doing fantastic. I can actually spend more, right? And so the the temporary plan until the next review is, okay, you've stress tested this. We can now spend 
X thousand dollars more per year because our portfolio is so much larger. And so that's kind of that plan, right? And then 2008 hits and it's like, okay, wait, hold on. Now we've got to change, we have to change the plan again, right? Um, so how how do you go through it there? I mean, do you, because when, I, when I've gone through your podcast and I've read your book, to me, it's, uh, it sounded like, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that, and we'll talk about the Monte Carlo analysis in, in the next question, but it sounds like you sort of rerun the numbers using the newest data. So 2008 happens, now it's like, okay, our confidence level is really low that we have enough to basically stay retired. And so now we make those sort of tweaks. Um, is that kind of how, yeah. how you do it? Yeah, okay. So we're rerunning the numbers constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, every meeting is a total rerunning of the numbers. Um, and my wife and I just came back from the UK. And so we, we were walking around London and we hadn't been there in 20 something years. And so I had my, my iPhone out and my Google map and I know where I want to go. And I was on airplane mode because I didn't want the data and I could see my, but I could still see my dot location and where I wanted to go. And so what we did was as we walked we started to see when our dot started to go away from where we wanted to go and not towards where we wanted to go. That's how I think of what you're referring to is it's not like you rerun it after 08. You're doing it real time, especially in times of stress to see when are we way off course? Because the last thing we want to have is a big conversation about spending adjustments or anything else. I would much rather have lots of little adjustments along the way. So my suggestion would be is, especially during times of stress, market stress, we'll say, or even life stress, when you think your spending is going to be crazy, start to do more iterations to make sure you're not getting too far off course. Because it's much better to have lots of little incremental adjustments than one big adjustment. Mm-hmm. And we just use the tools to tell us when, yeah, we're a little off course, but we're still going in the right direction. Uh, and, and then telling us, wow, we just really are, we have to reroute everything now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how we do it. Sure. Is that answering your question? It does. Or? Yeah. How often do you have these little conversations slash, you know, recrunching the numbers, um, yeah, in a neutral environment, we're doing it every six months. Okay. And that's probably still too much. Um, but in, when markets are bad, you start doing it more. Right. You start doing it, you know, it, at least monthly, just, just to see one psychologically and two, uh, just to see if you're getting off course. Now, part of this too is in our planning, we build cash flow tripwires or cash reserve tripwire. So we're always trying to make decisions two to five years ahead of time from a spending standpoint. So in 2008, and if this is helpful, when we were going through this with clients that did not adjust down their risk, they still lost money during that time anyway. What we, we already had at the time, the way we were doing it, we had two years of cash reserves for planned spending. So any money, quote unquote, at risk was really two years plus. And in reality, it was even longer because their portfolio was throwing off dividends and interest and things like that. So we were really, we were still sitting even at the depths of 2008 in a, in a period where 
we're not really going to have to make any life decisions because we have enough cash to last us three to four years. Gotcha. And that gives you a, a much better financial, you're in a much better financial position to make decisions, but also psychological mm-hmm. position to make decisions. Well, for sure. For sure. Well, especially if someone's retired, I know when we kind of hit that milestone, I thought, okay, I want to have a, I got so used to having so much in equities, right? Uh, because that's what you do when you're trying to grow and retire early and all that stuff. Um, but I, and I, fa- and I just, you know, I'm big on opportunity cost and I hate leaving money on the table and all that kind of, you know, it just feels unoptimized. But I felt I, so I had like a relatively small cash cushion at the time and I, and I, found myself checking the markets every day, even though like I'm a total passive index investor, but I'm still, you know, checking them every day and always thinking about it. And and I'm thinking, you know what, this isn't healthy, right? This is not a good thing. And I found as soon as I put a lot more into the cash cushion, like you mentioned, like the few years, right off the bat, I like I found once I hit that like one, two year sort of uh, window, they, they, things just became so much more calm. There's something about hitting, knowing, hey, I've got enough for like, let's say one, two, five years. I can ride this out even if there is another 2008. And I think what you did is you finally reassessed what opportunity cost is and and you realize there's a opportunity. You know, we think of opportunity cost as missed or gone return. Yes. Right? Well, there are other things that uh, that trump that in a lot of ways. How much does an airbag cost? I think it's like $1,500, $2,000. Sure. Yeah, probably. Right? Um, what are the statistics that you're going to have one deployed in a car that you have? Yeah, very, very low, but you still- Why would it. you ever spend an extra $2,000 on an airbag? Right. It, it, that's sort of opportunity cost thinking in the financial sense. That's right. That's right. right. And cash reserves are the airbag of your life. Right. Um, and so now when we work, and we only work with- clients over 50. So more traditional, either retiring or we call it pre-tiring and, you know, that in-between stage when they get to that stage where they're leaving their full-time career. Our, our, our rule now is we want to have five years of cash or consumption pre-funded. Okay. Uh, because that's the period of time when sequence of return risk is the deepest or the strongest because they're the youngest they're ever going to be. It's also a time of huge life change, mm-hmm. socially, psychologically, emotionally, because they're giving up their superpower, which is their ability to earn an income. And so we find that really helps de-risk the portfolio, but also helps them navigate the softer side of things as they get through this life change. And as they get older, if they're comfortable with it, you could actually have an equity rising glide path, mm-hmm. uh, which is not easy to do, but we find that having that huge airbag and, and I guess cushions all around the car really helps with the transition. For sure. For sure. Hard part with someone like you or others that are more the fire movement is your timeline is exponentially longer. Right. Not only is it just statistically longer, but with lifespans increasing, it could be exponentially longer depending on technology and medicine and everything else. Exactly. So you, you mentioned five years for the type of clients you typically deal with, which is more traditional retirement or 50 plus. They're, they're really thinking about it, right? It's very top of mind at that point. And you mentioned you use that five-year uh, window. Um, where Would that be different for someone that is an early retiree, let's say in their 30s or 40s? Would you change that for someone like that? I'm thinking here. 
It depends on whether they're earning any income at all. If they're not planning on earning any income, I probably would keep it that way longer. Mm-hmm. Go five years and keep it longer because you're gonna your sequence of return risk doesn't decrease. If you go from 30 to 40, you're not decreasing that sequence of return risk much. Okay. I'm um, just thinking this through because I don't really address that issue typically. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have, you know, the bigger risk is inflation longer term. That's the one thing I think with fire that I have issue with or I have concern with is it's retire early. That's the RE. I guess we better define our terms of what retire actually means because every person that I know that has done it doesn't really retire. Agreed. It's even even baby boomers, when I talk to them about in my audience, when I survey them, I ask them, I ask them what retirement means and I have them use different words. It's never lack of work. It's control of my time and time freedom. And I think that's really what retirement means now, but we still think of it think of it in this traditional sense. Yes. And I think that's really the biggest power. So I, th- I think work is a superpower mm-hmm. from a financial sense. It oh. is your net. We call it human capital. 100%. Yeah. And, and I'm a big fan of what I call pre-retirement, which is, you know, retirement is not binary. It's not work. Don't work. It's a, it's a dimmer switch that you can manage and working, but on your own terms, even if it's for substantially less money, it gives you a lot more flexibility in decision-making. It gives you this great tailwind of cash flow coming in, but it also gives you um, power in the sense that if things start to go bad, you can dial that up. And if things start to, you know, and in calm times, you can dial it down and have more time freedom and it keeps your skill sets um, sharp. sharp and it keeps your, it probably even it just as importantly, your professional networks current and relevant so you can have opportunities. Because if you just go all fire and you, you're out of the workforce for five years where your skill sets have atrophied and just in, as importantly, your professional network may have become stale and that's where opportunities come. So I think that's a critical part of it. So I think that's, we don't define it that way, but I think that's what the new retirement is, is this, I call it pre-retirement in between stage. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I mean, for someone that is part of the FIRE movement, I mean, for everyone I've, I've talked to in this that has actually pulled it off, you know, there's that... Um, I think I think maybe it was even you that called it the was it the retirement honeymoon phase or something like that? Is that was that your term? I don't know if it was my term, but I'm sure I've used it. Name <laughs> it until somebody else does. But there's that initial sort of honeymoon retirement phase where even you know if you hit fire or even if you don't, regardless where you go and you do the travel, you do all that fun stuff, right? And then people assume that that's what they're going to be doing the whole time. But then after a while, it's like okay. Let's let's get something else. Let's get some more, you know more intellectual stimulation going. Let's get more learning going. There's only so many golf games or or travel things. You know, you eventually you want to sort of check those other boxes in your brain in, in terms of personal development and education and fulfillment and all that uh, instead of just drinking 
on a beach all day. <laughs> I, I, I don't I mean, think that's Yeah, and baby boomers experience the same thing. Mm-hmm. Even if you're 60 years old and you retire, you go through the honeymoon phase, It's and they're still looking at 30 years, and we're made to do something. Right. You don't turn that off. Mm-hmm. I, and I, but I do think the key is, I guess I, you would call me fire, right? I'm 52 and I control my own time. And I have to remind myself when I beat myself up for being so busy as I go, it's all by choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's usually how it works. Yeah. It's all self-induced. Um, but it's that control of time. And a lot of this sort of came to the mainstream and I, and from Tim Ferriss's book. Right. Right. The four hour work week. And some of the concepts that he didn't create, but articulated and really leaned into heavily. Do you think he works four hours a week? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> he works, you know, probably more than I do. Right. But it's that concept of working on your own terms and feeling like you have, like with you being fire, what that gave you and what that gave you was control and options. Yes. And most of us, when we're working traditional work, we feel we have no option. And we feel that we are totally subservient to our boss, our master, our company, and we don't have control. If we want to go on vacation, we have to submit a request and count our days. If we want to go to the child's play, we have to ask permission I think that is what we, the fire movement or even retirement, they're just tired of the grind, tired of the higher expectations, tired of the reviews, tired of the meetings and the travel and so on. I think that's really what we want to escape. Mm -hmm. But we still have a ton of art in whatever way. What I do, I think of myself as an artist. I think of you as an artist. We still have a lot to give to the world and explore intellectually and that's never going to go away. I hope not. Yeah. So it's more the the ambition is for for freedom and choice and being able to choose what you want to work on, the type of projects you want to work on, as opposed to like what you said, going to having to ask because if you can go to a doctor's appointment or or leave early to pick up your kids or or whatever the or take on some project that you're really passionate about and hopefully your boss approves it or something like that. So a good example. I mean, yeah. I mean, and if you look at me. You know, I, I don't know how I look from the outside, but I'm told it's like, wow, I want to have what you have. You got all this freedom, everything else. I work harder than anybody I know, mm-hmm. time-wise, by choice though. Yeah. And that that makes all the difference. That's different, yeah. Like you being able to have your podcast, have your book, have your practice and choosing to do that is a lot different than someone saying you have to be in this cubicle five days a week from this time to this time at a minimum. That That's a very different- um, Right. Right. A very different and, life. Yeah. And it's hard to do that in the traditional work world. And I think in the, in the book, I talk about my friend um, some, and he quits. He works high level corporate, but he quits every four to five years mm-hmm. and then takes two or three years off. Right. And then goes back into corporate again. That's much harder to pull off, I think, than what we're talking about. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is that so when you were talking about, that five-year window for someone that's in fire versus not. So let's assume that they, they're early retired. They have the five, they're, they're going to generate some income just to keep, you know, because it helps obviously and keep the network uh, and skills sharp like you were talking about. 
so do you think five years then in that case is a good time frame for them to write out any 2008 scenarios if needed or if they all of a sudden want to stop working for a year that they have that option to do so, let's say, or six months or something like that? It's very difficult to answer that question because I'm always data dependent. Mm-hmm. It depends. Um, I'm not a big, what's my number? I think it's a, that's a good like any stereotypical rule of thumb, it doesn't apply to anybody, but it is a general rule mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and withdrawal rates, I'm not a big fan of. I get it in the academic sense, but that's not really how life works in my experience. Mm-hmm. But it's good to take take exam, uh, track of. I like, I only, I can only answer that question. I think process, strategy, tactics. I keep going in that order and you have to go in that order to get the tactics end up being self-evident. So to answer your question, it depends, right? The key is to have a system, because we can't figure any of this out, what we need to have is a process that gives us this framework to recheck and, and make adjustments early rather than later. And like an airplane, or if you've ever orienteered, you're going to make adjustments and they'll end up being not enough or over adjustments. Then you're just going to keep making those adjustments back and forth, back and forth, back and forth along the way. Mm-hmm. Because that's the, you know, so we were, you said we we're going to talk about Monte Carlo statistic modeling that, um, so in 08, when we had clients where it was hitting the fan, the decisions were, when our confidence level started to tick downward because the assets weren't growing, they were actually decreasing. Even though we were thinking far ahead, what we did is we made lots of little adjustments. You know, just like you would in a ship, you would batten down the hatches or a storm is coming. You bring in the chairs and you close the windows. You know, in this sense, I can remember somewhere is okay, well, maybe we're going to slow down the travel slow down some of the wants and the wishes during this storm, which increases our cash cushion because we're foregoing some of that spending. And then though that's where you're going to have more power than portfolio adjustments. Mm-hmm. If, assuming you did the portfolio prudently in the first spot. And then as the, as the storm calms, you can bring back some of those things. So when we're defining spending, so we talk about a, a cash floor. Well, then the next question is, what's the spending part of that cash floor? And for us, we have three tripwires. We have, what are our basic needs? What is a good life? Not extravagant, but what is a good life? I still get to go out to eat. I still can buy, have Netflix. I can still have some joys, but it's not extravagant. What's that number month, year by year? And then what are the wants? you know, the travel, you know, the basic travel that you would like and things you'd like to do. And then what are the aspirational wishes? So when you're mapping that floor, you usually map it with most of the wants and the wishes. And that gives you even more flexibility during storms to dial down the wants and still have, not feel like you have to forego, you know, you know, joy and the simple pleasures. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I, I'm glad you explained it that way because it makes it a bit more structured and, and, and how we can think about it and, and sort of plan for it. Just have a process, right? As opposed to just, 
oh, I think it should be this percent or this number of years, that kind of a thing. Because when we're making these decisions, we have to remember we're generally under some level of stress. And we are not smart people in general or very rational people in general. Be a better way to say it. We're really not rational when we're under stress. You know, hand on the on the hot plate, take it away now. There's no thinking going on. Just take the pain away. And there's a lot of uh, psychological studies that have proven this from a decision-making standpoint. So the key is how do you, one, the floors help bring rationality and give you some basis for bringing the rationality back. But generally when, I, I can remember going through eight, I'm sure you do that whole great recession. It was an emotional beating, even, and when you don't have your superpower and you're retired or you don't have your, your superpowers impaired by fire, it's even more of an emotional beating because when it's going down, especially in that, because it was extra, uh, it was long, right? I mean, it was a series of jabs to the face from Lehman Brothers and the Bear Stearns and then this and then that. It wasn't like it just happened in a month and what do we do? It was a, you know, what, October 07 to March of 09, 50%, you know, death march. Mm -hmm. You're not making decisions that it's going to ever get better because our mind works that whatever was happening, we we just project that out forever. So we, we forget that emotional mindset that we were in. Uh, and that's why having, you know, the kind of cash flow planning and, and, and is important to have that runway. But I think the other reason it's really important is we want to do something when that happens. So even dialing down wishes, dialing down wants, and moderating or spending, making some minor tweaks to the portfolio that probably make no difference at all, but it makes, we're actually taking action. And I think that's what a lot of times we really want is we want to be able to take action. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, because that keeps us on our toes. If it's, oh, just hold on because statistically everything's going to be okay. Well, now we're on our heels and we're at, we are powerless and that's not a comfortable position. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, just wanted to do a quick intermission to let you know about a new free guide that I created on the top personal finance and investing tools available to Canadians. Now, these are tools and sites that I've personally used to help us achieve financial dependence so that we could quit our jobs in our early 30s. And they're also the tools and resources that I use now to optimize and manage our finances and ensure that we're paying the lowest fees while getting solid returns on our investments. And really just to make sure that we don't have to go back and then get regular jobs anymore. So I'm giving this guide away for free to all Bullock Canada listeners. They've helped me out a lot. I think they're going to help you out a lot as well. So all you have to do is go to Build Wealth Canada. and enter your email at the top of the page so that I know where to send it. And that's it. And this will also add you to the Build Wealth Canada newsletter where you'll be informed of new free guides as they get released, as well as any giveaways that I have on the show. So as you've 
if you're a long-time listener, you know that oftentimes you know, we'll have authors on the show who have written books around investing, personal finance, and so oftentimes I do giveaways of those books. So this is just a way for you to be informed and win some free signed copies for free. And it's also the best way to ask questions that you want answered on future episodes of the show and suggest what future guides you'd like me to build for you and the community as well. So enjoy the guide. I'm here if you have any questions, and you can get all that by signing up for free over on the front page at Build. WealthCanada.ca. All right. So enjoy. And now back to the show. One thing that I hear over and over again um, from others that are in this field, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned five years as kind of that that number, right? And obviously you said that can vary depending on, on the person and the circumstances and you keep checking in to, and, and all that. Um, but I, I hear a lot of other you know, financial planners and people in, you know, people in the media and all that, they, they use that five year sort of window for for as a in terms of a safety cushion because if you really i haven't seen that much oh really okay that's that that seems to be like a common uh one and and then the reasoning that i see a lot of that uh, or the reasoning for when they say okay well why why you know and some will say four some will say six you know but kind of around that area a lot of them will say well it's because if you're willing to hold out that long that can pretty much historically that would have rode out a lot of recessions. And so if you have, let's say, you know, you're in retirement and you've got all this, uh, let's say, fixed income and combination of fixed income, you know, cash, if you have enough of that to hold you out, let's say for five years, there's a very good chance, at least based historically, which we know isn't, you know, 100% uh, representative of the future, but uh, that's kind of the best shot you have of securing yourself to be able to ride out even the heaviest storms. What, What are your thoughts about that? Well, statistically, it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficult part is we don't live in statistics. Right. Right. I mean, I used to debate in high school and college, and I literally owned a book, How to Lie with Statistics. I mean, it's so easy. It, it is so easy. Not that anybody's lying here. I, I think of it from a slightly different angle of, we usually we talk about what is my allocation, right? Really what they're saying and what is true is, Time, the time frame of the investment out is is really really important to position it for success, right? That's basically what they're saying. If it's a five or six year time frame, statistically, you may not make money, but you'll come out relatively unscathed historically. So when we're thinking of setting up, allocating resources from the balance sheet you don't just have one portfolio, you have multiple portfolios and they're time segmented, right? So you're going to have your two-year cash cushion. That's one portfolio. That's liquid. You're going to have your three years on top of that, which will be laddered bonds or CDs or what have you. That's portfolio number two. Portfolio number three, which is five-year plus, may be a balanced allocation of some sort you know, that's, you know, a mix of bonds and stocks and other risk assets. And then you may have portfolio four, which are your 10 year plus assets, which may be Roth accounts in the USA or, or the assets that you know are really long-term. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be much more, you know, they're going to present, if you just looked at portfolio four and the person was 60 years old, you say, why the heck do you own something so aggressive? Because it will be a much more aggressive portfolio than one, two, and three, because it has the longest time frame. Hmm, for sure. 
I think that's how we think of asset allocation. It's not, you want to have it time segmented because of the statistic, you're trying to statistically set it up for success. Mm -hmm. And and so just to translate this to the Canadians, because we, uh, Roger, he's in the US, so he was using some some US terms there. So, and and Roger, uh, jump in if I I got the timing wrong, because I'm just going from memory of what you just said, but basically one to two years of cash. So that's the same, obviously, Canada and the US. Uh, And then you said another three on top of that in terms of very safe, and you mentioned CDs, which in Canada for everyone, that's basically like GICs. Um, so, So, you know, something like a GIC, ladder, for example, something of that sort, that sort of our equivalent here in Canada. Um, So basically, uh, you know, ultra safe, guaranteed, you know, it's not going to fluctuate at all with the stock market or with interest rates even, right? Like if you have a, you're basically locked in. Um, so, so you, like you wouldn't do bond ETFs, for example, right, Roger, in like the two, in, a, in, a, in that three-year Exactly, bucket. because you don't, you want to know you're getting your money back on a certain date. Gotcha, gotcha. So in those cases, you would do something like GICs, in your case, CDs, because if interest rates change, that's not going to, impact your cash essentially at all. Whereas if you did like a bond ETF, if interest rates go up, your bond values go down, now you're actually taking, now you're taking on interest rate risk and you're saying that doesn't belong in that second bucket yet because we want that second bucket to be super safe. Well said. Okay, perfect. Okay. And then bucket, uh, then you said the next, let's say five to 10 year, right? That's where you would have something like and that's, I guess that's where there's a lot of tweaking going on, I assume, right? Where, because you mentioned a balanced portfolio. So now we're talking a mix between stocks and bonds, you know, nicely diversified. Yeah, whatever, I mean, your, yeah, whatever your asset allocation decision is. Right, right. So that's going to be highly customizable depending on, or yeah, highly custom depending on what you're comfortable with and all of that. And then you're saying something like 10 years plus, okay, that's our all equity, high growth designated bucket. Um, and that, is that the that I repeat yeah, that I mean, in the yeah, correct way? Yeah, okay. You did okay. Extremely well. Yes. Okay. No, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Yeah. And so, and all of this comes really from the pension management world, mm-hmm. where they're asset liability matching. You want to pay? You know, they know they're going to have consumption or payments they have to make to pensioners. So they have to pre-fund. They got to know the money is going to be there in the short term, and then they still have to earn money to make sure it's there in the long term. We're right. doing the same thing just on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, they, they know people are going to keep coming in. They have these liabilities. They still have to do, which is, yeah, I, I guess very. It is similar in a lot of ways to even on an individual level because there's money yeah. you need to spend now for your to get groceries, <laughs> and you know, and, yeah. and and then, but you also need to make sure that you're not eating cat food when you're. 80. So there's that balance. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think thinking of it as separate portfolios helps. Mm-hmm. It helps in the discussion um, and helps keep the course. Cause I've had, I have, you know, I can think of one particular client where it's a, you know, they, they read the wrong things that scare the heck out of them. Cause there's a lot of that stuff out there because it sells and it gets eyeballs and I always have to walk through. I mean, it literally, it's the same conversation of, yes, but this is, let's look at our, our different portfolios here. And this is the money that is at risk and the things that you are so afraid of. Really, we don't even have to touch for seven years. Right. And it helps bring back perspective. Come back from the cliff. Come back. That's from right. The cliff. That's right. So this is, I mean, this is kind of leading into a question I had for later. 
uh, which, which you might as well talk about now. So, I mean, what you're talking about, what you just explained, I mean, that's pretty much your bucket strategy, right? Would that be the right way to call it? Yes, that is a trademark term, I believe, but yes. Okay. <laughs> so I've noticed some some financial planners, right? They don't do the bucket strategy. They'll just say, okay, let's find out what your asset allocation should be. And we don't mess with the buckets at all. We just rebalance annually, semi-annually. We take the money we need. We take it out in such a manner that we're back in balance once all is said and done. And and that's it, right? And so some I've that I've spoken to, they take that approach, right? And then yours is more the kind of the bucket strategy. And I guess it's a personal preference of which one you, you like, but I, I also like the bucket strategy because having gone through this whole sort of retirement piece myself, I've noticed that you do get such more peace of mind and calmness when you know like what you're explaining with your client where, look, this part, it's seven years out. So why, like, don't worry about it. And you've got enough, let's say cash for one to two years. So why are you stressing because the markets went down a few percent today, right? And I, I know I personally found that very beneficial. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I think the, the most important thing to understand when you when you have a retirement discussion, whether you're fire or traditional, is nobody knows how to do this. This has never been done before in the history of man. Ever. Right. Like the the future. What, what's actually going to happen in the future? It's going to. Well, be no. Nothing. Even for baby boomers, nobody's planned out and done a retirement like they have. Right. Because they're living longer, they're spending more money, they're healthier and more active than ever before. They don't typically have pensions and they're in control of their own money. Nobody's ever figured that out. I've sat with the smartest minds in the world on this subject and we're all just, it's never been done before. So there is no right way. What I would suggest is we have to be careful with statistics because what, what, I, what I see happening a lot, which I don't particularly like, I guess, is we use statistics and build a system and then we start planning cash flows and spending way too much time thinking about cash flows 20 years into the future and tax estimates and all this other stuff, trying to get more precise, more precise, more precise in what a lot of us fail to realize when we're dealing with such a fluid environment, more precision does not equal more accuracy. I don't like spending time on things. I don't like making decisions way before I need to. Mm -hmm. I'd rather let them ripen on the vine and deal with what I can do next. And spending too much time on what life will look like 10 years from now, cash flow wise is a little bit of a waste of time. It's but it spreadsheets lend itself to doing that though. Right. Um there's just so many variables, right? Yeah, I mean you do have to do it to accurately. a point. Right. I'm not saying don't do it, but I think in planning we do it we have only so much brain energy and <laughs> only right. so much time. Let's focus on the iterative nature and what where are the risks and where are the opportunities to take advantage of now? In mm -hmm. uh, us, for us, we call it agile, right? We take the agile, you know, retirement management methodology, which is iterative. Yeah. Before I forget, um, and before we move on, because I want to talk to you about the Monte Carlo simulations, which I, I've seen you do your case studies and you use those a lot. But before, just so I don't forget this last piece, 
when you're talking about cash flow, uh, like the two years of cash, for example, and then let's say three to five years of that safety bucket of, of GICs or, or CDs in your case, uh, you know, you're basing how much to have based on what the couple or, or person sees their expenses being, you know, year over year, right? Uh, that's how. But then, when you're looking at that, do you factor in dividends and interest? So let's say someone spends thirty k a year, right? And then, okay, you're saying two. Okay, we need two, uh, two years of cash. So does that mean they should have sixty k of cash in that first bucket, or no? Because okay, they still need the 60K, but they're getting interest and dividends coming in. And sure, we can, you know, like grow, mark down the dividends by like 25% in case there's like a big correction or something like that. You know, like, do you do you factor those things in or not really? Yeah, so when we're building the five-year floor, it's year by year, and this is spreadsheet-based, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be, and, and the spending is lumpy because sometimes you're going to do a big vacation. Sometimes you'll need a car. We map out what the spending is for needs, wants, and wishes, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. We map out dividends and interest that we expect to receive, year one, two, three, four, five. We map out what income sources we might have, right, through each year. We map out the tax estimate based on the income sources and the dividends and interest in the taxable accounts. We put the tax projection. We total both of those up and we get the net amount we know we'll need from our financial capital. Okay. And that represents the one, two, three, four, five-year floor that we'll need to fund. Uh, The next question becomes, where do we fund it from? Right? And then that's a whole different discussion because we we don't know if it's going to be from dividends and interest. Maybe those are being reinvested. We haven't made that decision yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you guys, uh, for dividend payments in particular, when you're doing projections in regards to that, because they're not guaranteed, because they tend to drop when markets get really bad, do you uh, sort of almost like apply like a discount, you know, percentage to it where, okay, we're only going to take 25% or 75% of dividends that we got last time because they might get cut by? No, we don't do that for this year. For this exercise, we don't do that. And dividends don't typically drop. Or, I mean, like they did in 2008, right? Like with, with companies... Depends on the companies, but yeah, 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 yeah. Financial companies for sure. But no, we don't, we don't do any because that's too unknowable. You know, for this exercise, we're just using base assumptions. We're okay. not too worried about uncertainty factoring into all that. Right, right. Okay, okay. Sounds good. Mostly, um, we have them in there. I try. I would love to depress, uh, suppress them actually because they confuse it when someone's looking at it. Usually, this is really just to get the tax estimate part of the the work done. Okay. So we can account for taxes. Oh, okay. Okay. Understood. Understood. Um, yeah. I'm thinking more like longer term planning, like 10 years down the road or five years, 2008. I don't worry about that. Been, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. You're, okay. I understood. Understood. So, okay. Let's finally get to this Monte Carlo simulation piece. <laughs> so, so you're a heavy user of that. Uh, just for anybody listening, uh, Roger does these really neat uh, case studies with, with some of his clients from time to time. And he kind of takes them through. Not my clients. Like, they're just listeners. Oh, sorry. Listeners. L- listeners yeah. from, from your podcast, uh, which is Retirement Answer Man. Uh, definitely. You know, check it out. Uh, and so you're a heavy user of Monte Carlo simulations that basically for anyone never hear, heard, that's never heard of this term before. It's really one of the things they do is they stress test whether someone actually has enough to retire. And so for somebody that hasn't heard of these Monte Carlo simulations before, can you explain what they are, Roger? Oh, sure. And you want like in, in one minute? 
uh, yeah, like, like let's pretend. So this is the first time they've ever, this is the first podcast okay. they've ever downloaded about fi- finance or investing. <laughs> and they're like, what the heck is this Monte Carlo thing? It sounds complicated. Maybe okay, I yeah, should it, turn this off. And you're like, no, wait, this is actually pretty cool. Here's here's it what is it is really <laughs> cool, but it, yeah, it's it's um, it's just a t- statistical modeling. So if you are John and you're retiring at age sixty and you're going to spend a hundred thousand dollars a year and you are going to have you know twenty thousand a year in income coming in and we know these numbers and we put inflation to them and we just assume and we know you're going to pass away. We'll assume ninety years old. Right. So we got a 30 year time frame. We know the spending is going to happen with this little amount of income in. And we know you have, let's say, a million dollars in assets. All Monte Carlo does is it assumes all those life spending and income sources happen exactly like we've modeled. And it isolates the only variable being your portfolio. So let's assume your portfolio has an average return of 10%. And I'm just totally making these numbers up. Well, on average, even if a, you know, I'll go back to the S&P 500 if we, you know, the US stock index over the over the last 90 100 years, it's had an average return right around 10%. Well, a lot of times we'll just use the average return and put that in as a return assumption. Uh, the problem with that is we don't experience returns like that. Nobody gets the average return. So historically with the S&P 500, if you put a band of around 2% around the average, and we'll just call it 10% for this discussion, only about 6% uh, or was it six iterations out of the last 90 were within 2% of the average. Mm-hmm. You know, because we get 20% returns, negative 10% returns, you, it rarely gets even close to what the average is. And that's really important for sure. You're planning. So all Monte Carlo scenario does is it assumes your spending and your income happens exactly like we've modeled. And then it runs a thousand lifetimes of you with the only variable being the sequence of returns you get. So in iteration number one, you'll get really crappy markets up front and then normal markets later on or vice versa and everything in between. And by running so many iterations with this randomness of returns, you get a percentage of times that Johnny or whoever I said at the beginning of this example could explain, could actually sustain this. Because when you're retiring and you're taking money from financial assets, it has nothing to do with the average. It has to do with the sequencing of returns. Because if you have, let's say you have that million dollars and you're taking out 5% a year, so that's $50,000. Well, in year one, if the market goes down by 10%, your million dollars is now $900,000 and you're taking out your $50,000. So that's more than 5%. And now you're, after year one, your million dollars is now worth $850,000. And then you have to take out your $50,000 the next year because that's your spending. You, that can blow up your plan really quickly if you have all those bad returns. So we want to factor that in there. Uh, and so that's what just what Monte Carlo scenarios do. And at the end of the day, what you get is a confidence level of this percentage of the time Johnny was able to spend this without any problems. And usually that's going to be, let's say, 80, 90% of the time. The other 10 or 20% of the time, it was those really bad scenarios where they ran out of money. Mm-hmm. 
And it's good to know. It's like a compass. I would think of it like a compass giving you a reading of whether you're walking in a safe direction or you're walking towards a cliff. How was that? Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and if anybody wants to uh, read up on it some more, I mean, it, uh, if, if also if you Google uh, sequence of returns risk, that's also what Roger was uh, explaining as he was explaining the Monte Carlo simulation. So um, you can definitely read up uh, on on that. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, now, w- when it comes to the Monte Carlo simulation, I mean, you use a professional financial planning tool for this, but there are some free tools out there that have become pretty popular that anybody can use. Uh, fire, firecalc.com is one of them. I'll link to these in the show notes for everybody listening and cfiresim.com is, is another really popular one. And I mean, these essentially let people run their own Monte Carlo simulations to see if they have enough to retire. Do you have any advice, Roger, to people when they decide to go at it themselves and use these tools themselves? In particular, are there any common mistakes that you see people make when using these or that you think people might make when using these types of tools? Yeah, a couple things. One is... A tool is only as good as the way it's built, which are, there are, I'm a little bit of a Monte Carlo's snob. (laughs) (laughs) I've only used two engines that I felt comfortable enough to use in the last 15, 20 years. Um, How they're built is important because there are so many assumptions underneath, return assumptions, tax assumptions, where they're grabbing money from, and it just goes deeper and deeper from there. Um. So the, the rule, but but a free tool doesn't mean that even if it's a, not a, oh, oh, and I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the tools you mentioned, but even if it's not the Mercedes or what have you of Monte Carlo tools, doesn't mean there's not a lot of value there. Think of it like a scale. You know, we all hate to weigh ourselves and I'm always heavier on my doctor's scale than I am at my own scale. <laughs> I hate that scale. And I'm like, nurse, you need to turn around because I'm stripping my clothes off because this is wrong. Um, But the point is that a scale, the key is to use the same scale over and over and over again. So even if it's not a perfect scale, if you use the same scale, you can still get data because you're, you're seeing how you're moving from a consistent viewpoint, how that scale is calibrated. So I think there's a lot of value in Monte Carlo scenarios, even if they're not perfect, as long as you're iterating. And when I say iterating, doing lots of little check-ins and re-adjustments so you can identify when things are veering one direction or the other. So I think that's number one is if you're going to use a scale, a Monte Carlo scenario, and you're not really interested in the details, which are really important, that's okay, I guess. It's better than nothing, but make sure you're using the same scale and understanding that it, the key is in the iteration. That's number one. Number two is that you want to, wow, I just flipped out of my mind. No, number two is that higher probability of success is not necessarily better. So if it says you have a 90% probability of success or comfort rate, you know, com- or confidence level, whatever phrase you want to use. Well, the natural question, well, I would prefer to have 95 or 100, right? And that is, even in my work, I'm around 85 to 90 is where I want to be. But intuitively, well, I would rather have 100, especially when I'm, this is so important. That makes sense. And you can always get to 100, but here's the deal. 
To get to 100%, that means you're either going to have to work longer, save more money, take more investment risk, or live on less, or die earlier. You tweak any one of those, and you can get that thing to say 100. But we got to remember that, and this, I think, is one issue that financial planning is starting to get better at, is it's not always about sacrifice for later, which is generally the, those five choices I rattled off are generally what the recommendations end up being for most people. And they're all sacrificial recommendations. They cause you to sacrifice some of your life for making the numbers work. And, you know, you remember teeter totters you're a young guy. Do you, were they even <laughs> legal back when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah, I remember teeter totters. Yeah. I don't think they're legal now. They're like <laughs> outlawed, like meth. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Teeter-totter. So, you know, you bounce back and forth. And that's sort of how this planning dynamic works. And on one side of the teeter-totter is your life today. We all want to have a great life today because tomorrow is not promised to us. Some of us feel that more than others. But we also want to make sure we're, we have a good life or are safe when we're 90 or 85 or whatever, whatever have you, right? Those are, there's a natural tension between those two competing issue, uh, those two competing desires. And you and I, we're standing, we're straddling, we're like balancing in the middle of that teeter-totter, trying to balance those two competing interests. Generally, financial planning to make it quote-unquote work will cause you to sacrifice more of your life right now in the form of working longer, saving more, taking more investment risk, or foregoing something later on to make sure you're okay later on. That's generally how advice plays out that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's important, but people can miss their, the only life they have in feeling confident about a life that's not really promised to them. So I think there's some balance in between there and trying to get that sucker to read 99 or a hundred is going to may cause you to be out of balance on that teeter totter. Mm -hmm. That makes that makes sense. Yeah, I remember reading your book, and you were uh, you mentioned sort of that eighty five percent confidence that you like to use, and you just mentioned eighty five to ninety um, for for your when you're working with clients and when you're running these simulations. But a lot of the things I see online, they're saying, "Oh, you need like ninety five, like aim for ninety five percent, aim for a hundred percent." And I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because, like you mentioned, there's those certain levers that you can pull, those little minor adjustments you can make so that you can retire potentially years earlier, right? As long as you're willing to make those minor adjustments instead of aiming for this 100%, which actually still isn't guaranteed. It just it's gives a you a- It's a false yeah. sense of security, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of it depends too on, are we talking needs, wants, and wishes we're measuring here? What I like to do when I stress test is, okay, everything hits the fan. Let's look at the different tripwires. How much of my wishes- Where's the Monte Carlo scenario on that? Where's the Monte Carlo scenario on my wants and needs? And where is it on my needs? And in where that, you know, every decision, it all depends, just like a doctor says, on the situation. Because if some people have guaranteed income sources, some people have a lot of fluff, then maybe you can skew higher. A lot of that really does depend. I always tell the story, and I think I told this in the book, about, look, at the end of the day, you may have to live in a trailer. Not that a trailer is bad, but assuming you're not, I mean, seriously, 
They're not. But we, most of us don't live in trailers, right? We live in houses or something that we designed that fits our lifestyle. And the thought of living in the trailer is you may have to have everything go wrong and sacrifice a hell of a lot in your life. And there's not a dang thing you can do about it ultimately. The key is that if you have a good process with the strategy that get you the tactics and you're very intentional in iterating, you don't want to have to go from your life as you have it right now and wake up tomorrow and say, oh my goodness, I have to blow up everything and go straight to the trailer metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Much better to iterate and make lots and lots of little adjustments to make the best of things. And if you ultimately get to the trailer, it's going to be an iteration. It's not going to be blowing up your life because whether it's the markets, inflation, your health, family dynamics, all of those things, they're really, there's no way to handicap what could happen. Mm-hmm. The best we have is to be really intentional about be creating a great life and iterating. And I think that's where all the focus should be. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, it makes me think of the the people, the 4% rule, right? And I think a common mistake that some people make when they first hear about it is, oh, okay, so I can take out 4% a year, you know, and I'm basically guaranteed and everything is great and I can just, I'm, I'm, I'm done, basically. I don't have to look at this ever again. And then if they get a, say, a bad sequence, depending on their personal scenario, it could be that, okay, you just did this, you took out this 4% blindly and then now, let's say things go really bad in the markets, you may now have to do the trailer option. Whereas if you kept revisiting it, kept making those minor adjustments like what you're talking about, maybe you wouldn't have had to do that. You just, you can't be just kind of put your head in the sand and, and not, you know, just ignore everything. You have to actually make these adjustments and revisit and, and tweak accordingly. Is that, would you say that's fair? Yeah, it's, it's, it's exact. It's the same. It's, I always say it's just like a marriage. Yeah, in a marriage, I've been married 29 years Tuesday. Congratulations. Yeah. We just had our 10 years, so you're a good you're a good role model for us. <laughs> uh, but it's like it, it's it's like how you have a good marriage. It's exactly in my mind exactly the same thing. The key to a great marriage is not to have any big conversations with your spouse. The key is to have lots of little conversations, some of them uncomfortable sometimes that you might want to put off or not have. But, and if we put those off and we don't have them, they don't go away. They just compound over time and create a big conversation. The key is to have little conversations so you don't have to have those big conversations. You know, that's exactly the same thing. Sometimes saying, you know, we need to, you know, tighten our belts a little bit because we're in a storm with that, you know, tightening your belt means maybe not going to Italy or not buying that car and delaying that and things like that. Well, that's uncomfortable. We're a want it now society. Um, but those little conversations ignored where you keep spending while the storm gets bigger and bigger and bigger is going to result in a big conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. So on the marriage side, if it could be, you don't have these conversations and then one day they just say, okay, I want a separation now. And you're just like, oh, well, wow, that's pretty 
very drastic all of a sudden, but it's that accumulation, right? And I guess in, in transferring this to in more of the financial planning space, it'd be more, I, I assume, like you're, you just keep doing things blindly. You're not having these conversations. And then one day you're like, oh no, I need to sell my house in order to fund, to, you know, to, to and downgrade. But I don't want to sell my house. I love this house. I, my kids grew up here. I have memories. I never want to move. But now I'm forced to because I didn't make those minor adjustments, you know, when I could have, and now it's too late. And now I actually need the capital. I have to move, you know, to some smaller condo or something, even though I don't want to, you know, kicking and screaming, but there's no choice. Would that be kind of a... Oh, I think that's perfect. Yeah, okay. And in fact, usually what you just had, what the scenario you just laid out, it's typically coupled with spouses and money because usually it's one spouse managing the money and hiding the storm from the other spouse and then having it all unravel. Money is a big reason, and talking about money is a big reason for divorces. And mm. what you just described plays out in marriages all the time mm. because they're not having those little conversations and they're not working as a team. One, I honestly, I went through this when, you know, this is now 14 years ago. I had that scenario and I handled it miserably. I had just left a major investment firm and my wife was home, not working, two small kids. And we were, we were like a startup. We were like we work right now, burning cash like crazy. We were deficit every month by a lot as we started, as I started a new business. And I was not the man I am today in the sense of having, informing my wife of what the journey that I was on or we were on and where, where we were at because of partly shame, partly wanting to please her and not say no, and partly wanting to be able to do things with their kids and all this other stuff. And it took a huge toll on me emotionally, ultimately caused a much bigger conversation with her. Um, it's very easy to do and it's easy to do. This money stuff is not that fun unless you're, you love geeking out on this. And so it's just really easy to do. It's important to have a lot. And it, and the more you have systems and work as a team, because the quicker you identify opportunities or risks to act on, the, the, the better off you're going to be and the more you can really make the most of this life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, no, that's good. That's really good advice. Um, just to um, finish off the kind of the, the Monte Carlo uh, subject that we that we started as well. A lot of these, not all financial planners and, and financial planning software do Monte Carlo analysis stress tests. Uh, you know the way that you do and the way that many other people do. And the most common alternative that I've seen is that in the financial planning software, the financial planner just enters what rates of return they expect the client to receive for the different years when they're doing the retirement projection. So they may have a higher uh, rate that they use when the client's younger and then maybe, you know, make it a bit lower, you know, to, to provide a bit more you know, fixed income as they get older. So when using this alternate method, how should listeners of the show ensure that their financial planners are actually stress testing the retirement projections to ensure that they still have enough to retire? Because like you mentioned, right, it's not like a linear thing where, oh, we estimate 8% a year or 10%. So let's just, you know, fill down an Excel across the board and then we're, you know, and then we're done. Obviously, if there's a major recession, things can really go uh, bad. So, I mean, is that why I'm assuming you use Monte Carlo analysis because it helps 
to test that out. But for those that don't use it, or for any listeners who have a financial planner and they've they've never been taken through a Monte Carlo simulation at all, you know how you know how how can they make sure that their planner is doing is factoring these things in, like using right, a lower rate of return, for example, just as a safety or, or something else. My first reaction: mm-hmm. find a new planner. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was my first reaction. Yeah. And, you know, because for a couple of reasons, one is the kind of returns you're talking about. Let's assume, okay, well, we think we're going to get 7%, but we'll be safe. We'll only get 5%, right? Mm-hmm. That's generally the, the, the adjustment we make to be safe. Well, the problem with linear planning like that is, okay, 5%. The problem is compounding. If I get five, if I be safe and get five percent, but I get five percent every single year for the rest of my life, that compounds. We we don't appreciate the compounding effect and how that will potentially drastically overestimate the success. Right, and it also can a success of something drastically because we're dealing with long timelines here. Secondly. It also, I think, sets things up for when the storms come, a mismatch of expectations. Um, because you know, I think it was you know, right after 08, we had a 10-year period where statistically it was a 0% return, right? So right. It, it sets it the up- The last decade you're referring to, yeah? Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. sets it up for poor conversations with the advisor when those periods come because they will come because that's just the way markets are where, Hey, wait a second, this is mismatching. Um, so I don't, I think that's just the, and you better have a lot far, you know, you better really have that cash floor built out farther. So at least you have some runway to make adjustments along the way. I just think it's, it's an antiquated way of planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, some software packages, they don't have that Monte Carlo piece. And so what I was thinking is in those cases, would you um, like fine, use the linear thing as a starting point, maybe use a oh, lower sure. rate, but then also do like, you know, so you do that sort of maybe for the cash flow, for the tax planning, some things of that nature. But then also let's run the current portfolio values in Monte Carlo right now, like using one of those free tools, for example, just to get a second kind of opinion using a different way of looking at it to see if, okay, do we get a green light on this one side? Yes. Did we get it through Monte Carlo too? Yes. Okay. Then there's a good chance that we're fine. What do you think of that approach? You're never fine. First of all, you're so never, you're, fine. you're always, you're always out. You're well, you're always out. Yeah. You have to keep revisiting yeah. it. Like this is, saying, yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. of financial or retirement planning as a project. This is a project, project management exercise. Okay. Right. And the project does not end when the plan is done. The project ends when you die. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think running, mul- I mean, even in our practice, we run two systems concurrently and they never agree, mm-hmm. which is, and we show them to the client They're and they both, you do Monte Carlo, but they're, they're very, sometimes come out with very different conclusions because of how they're built. Mm-hmm. That's not very comfortable. Right. It, you know, from a marketing standpoint, that doesn't look good. Well, why would they not agree? What we do now, I right. mean, that's incongruence. That I hired not- Rogers to give me an answer, and he gave me two, but right. the, the one's different than the other. What we, yeah, <laughs> they both have value in, you know. So if you think of your financial planning, so to go to what you're talking about, the feasibility stage 
can be much easier and leaner. And then you get to the sustainability stage of the project, which is making it robust and resilient to change. That's the cash flow planning mm-hmm. part. And then you can get to the optimization, which is all the tricks and, you know, and the bling. Questions. That's the bling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the feasibility stage is, you know, I need a car that moves and I know it's semi-reliable. The, the sustainability is I want airbags. I want, you know, all the, the, the robust features of car. And then the optimization phase is I want the tinted windows and the luxurious leather and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I do think running concurrently will help you. Okay. I think, yeah, but um, but I don't do any linear planning. Where it does help, actually, I, I'll, I'll let me restate. When I'm doing the cash flow planning for that five-year floor, we use linear planning just simply because you can't do Monte Carlo easy on a spreadsheet. Right. Right. So we do it for the shorter term stuff. I wouldn't do it for longer term projections. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because like one, one software that I use, that's, it, it does it more in a linear fashion. So I see what you're saying. Do that for the, let's say, five-year window. Yeah, because you have to come up with tax you, you need some, Exactly, because there's the yeah. whole, and then it's like, if you try to, like, how do you merge that with Monte Carlo? And like, that it just, your brain explodes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So this way you kind of use the one tool for that cash flow tax planning piece, but then you also want to take that 30,000 foot view and say, okay, we've That's done all the- Yes. Yeah, okay. And then that's when you do the Monte Carlo to see, okay, are we still good on a higher level? Most likely, hopefully, because uh, like you said, there's no guarantee and that's an important thing to reinforce. Yeah. So when you're uh, doing that five-year floor, yeah. So we, you know, we use, you know, we, do, we don't do Monte Carlo for that. That's just spreadsheet. Yeah, that right. You'll have some, you know, even with dividends, you'll have some basic assumptions in there. You're not too worried about them because it's only five years. Mm-hmm. And that's to get to how much you need to fund the floor with. And the other part of it is, no, I, the other once you get through funding your consumption, like we talked about, that's where, when you're not working full time, that's where all the tax planning, right? And op, there's a lot of that's where some bling can come in of yes. how you realize income and all those other things. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But yeah, but it's not worth doing that if your whole thing is not sustainable to begin with, and you're close to crashing and burning. So let's, like you said, fire off those two buckets for those two pieces first yeah, and then we worry about the optimization gotcha that was awesome thanks roger that's uh i love how you create things in like a process right so it's like okay we don't have to rethink this each time we have we know what we have to look at in in the different uh, uh buckets that's awesome um how are you for time roger are we running out here i don't want to take too much i am time. okay okay all right let me know if i'm because <laughs> I'm a chatty one, so and I, well, I obviously have... I am too. So I'm just <laughs> rambling away. <laughs> so good. Um, but you know, a lot of this too, and what I, when the reason I'm I'm enjoying this conversation so much is, I you know, nobody has this figured out, and but it still seems like people present themselves as they have they have it figured out, and I think sometimes we miss a lack of critical thinking and just it's an exploration and, and realizing we're all just trying to figure this out. And it's important to come and talk critically rather than, well, this is how it should be done. And right. You know, everybody else is silly. That's not helpful. I think, yeah, I think naturally just maybe even we as humans, you know, we, we want to have that silver bullet or that pill where, okay, it's been, the diagnosis has been done. Take this pill and you're done. (laughs) Right, and your problem is now solved, and you can move on to other parts in your life. But in this case, nothing like this exists. 
even though that's what we want, because you do have to be keep iterating and adjusting. And like you said, it's never been done before. And it's really uncomfortable. And you're right. I mean, it it doesn't have to be this. It could be, I want to lose weight. What's the pill or what's surgery, right? I mean, just look at, if you want to get an understanding of what you, that concept that you just talked about, we want easy because we want life. We just go watch late night TV or watch most financial marketing. It's the easy button. 100%. And that duct tape. Definitely. Yeah. They're all duct tape solutions. And even financial plans, when they were sold as a plan, okay, I got the financial planner. I got this leather bound binder. I put it on my shelf. I'm done. Hmm. And that is just, you know, fixing things and creating a great life with duct tape is not a good process. Hmm, For sure. Like you said, it's a project. It's not a one-time thing. Set it and forget it type of thing for sure yeah i remember getting a a negative review once on the podcast and the person was saying oh cornell just you know he talks about this financial planning things the guests he he just he keeps saying oh how it's complicated and he makes all these you know and he'll say words like but then this and then you know basically looking all these different variables and how it's complicated it's like just give me the simple like tell me what to do and i think it uh and i remember that really stuck with me because there is no silver bullet that will just you can just say like 4% was a good example, right? There, You can't, if you're a good financial planner, you can't just say, yes, take 4% every year forever and you're guaranteed to not run out of money. I mean, even ethically, you can't say that if you know what you're talking about because there's just way too many assumptions built in caveats. And- yeah, and the other factor about that, yeah, uh, is most people, I'm, I'm talking about baby boomers now that I encounter, they want to front load their life. If you're 50 or 60 and you're healthy, they want to make sure they make the most of the time that they're healthy and energetic, which means their spending usually wants to be front loaded and they want to know how much they can front load spending without, without handicapping themselves later in life. So you know, even withdrawal rates, I have clients that have withdrawal rates of 6 7% in some years, mm-hmm. but it varies because- they're trying to front load their life knowing right. they're going to slow down later on. And that's fine because when they're much older, they're in their 80s or whatever, they're going to be staying at home. They're not going to Venice or, or whatever. So they're right. okay doing 3% withdrawal rate at that point. And they're happy to do that because they don't, they're don't okay spending a lot less then. But now while they're healthy, they want to you know kind of maximize their life and they're happy to take that higher withdrawal rate. Right. And, yeah. and, the, and, and without good a good process, what ends up happening is they play it safe early because they're so worried about the future. And then they get to be 80 and realize, oh crap, I'm going to die with a lot of money and I don't have any energy to do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I missed my opportunity to live. For sure. Yeah. Then you get into these tragic scenarios, right? Where someone gets a health problem. And so they had all these plans to go scuba diving all over the world or biking over the world. Right. And then they're just saving and saving and saving for it. And then they finally get there and it's like, oh, I now have whether it's a bad knee or maybe some you know medical condition, and I can't I can't even travel anymore. Uh, I can't get travel insurance because I have a heart problem or you know something of that nature, right? And then it's exactly. just so it's so unfortunate for sure. Now, with the um, when we're talking about the buckets, are there certain rules that you have in terms of when to refill them? Like when, in terms you mentioned the, you know the two years of cash, the three to five for sort of that you know safety portion. Do you have any sort of rules that you like to go by in the sense of okay, if markets are up? 
like you just say, okay, if markets are up this year, then we refill the, let's say, bucket number two, or if they're down, then we, you know, we we rebalance. You know, like, do you have any sort of uh, concrete structure when it comes to these types of things, like refilling the buckets in particular? The concrete structure that we have is that we we make sure we readdress it in in, in the right rhythm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much data dependent on what markets are doing. Uh, we're going to let what the data shows us at the time in the state of the client's life help determine that. Okay. So it's never market driven in any way. It's always going to be based on what, you know, because it, what I have found is we, in planning, we think the goal part of it is fairly static and that's just as volatile as um, the markets or more so, actually. Right. And, and so we basically are rerunning everything. And so when we look at the goal spending, it's not about refilling the buckets. It's more about, okay, is this spending even still valid? Oh, no, we decided we want to move and do this. And right. now we don't want to do that. And so we end up renegotiating that part of it first. Right. And then- then get, allowing that to lead us to okay, what do we do cash flow wise to adjust to this new reality? Right, right. Like the oh, we didn't tell you, Roger. We're we're moving. We sold. We're selling our house and moving to you know <laughs> to Mexico or something. Like oh, well, okay. Well, that's going to change things a little bit. <laughs> well, a good example is this is our forever house. Well, a lot of times that's true until your first grandbaby is born. You know, five states away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now that's your forever house anymore. I don't believe in forever houses anymore because. Other than the first house we bought, every house we bought after that it was this is our forever house, and then things keep changing. And so now, like you know what, there's no such thing. I don't believe myself when I say it's a forever house anymore. Because like you said, right, things change, right? Like oh, we want to be clo-. like in our case, it's we're younger, right? So it was hey, we want to be closer to our parents, like the grandparents, right? Now they love seeing the grandkids. We love having them nearby, right? Uh, like that, you know. So things just keep. Uh, and like in your case, it's like well, you want to be close to the grandkids too, so. Yeah, well, I think you know, in there, I'm, I'm sure in some way, and I don't, I've just never thought of this part of it before. But somehow, saying it's, I've done this with bicycles. I know somehow this is my forever, whatever, can help justify overspending. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's my forever house, I can splurge on that. It's true. Yeah, might as well get that granite countertop or whatever the case exactly. may be. Because, yeah, I'm going to be in here forever. Might as well enjoy it. And then- <laughs> so there might be some rationalization in there. I don't know. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so you talked about sequence risk, Roger. Are there any, uh, you know, and this, this has gotten more and more, I, I would say, publicity, you know, with like the fire movement and the 4% rule and all that kind of stuff. Are there certain ways or preferred ways that you have of helping clients deal with sequence risk? We've talked about them, the cash floors. Right, right. So that's kind of the that's the primary uh, piece that you that you use. Well, yeah. and the other oh, part- oh yeah, that's right. And then and the Monte Carlo analysis that piece as well. Yeah. So that with the cash flows. Well, and, and then so this this will give me the opportunity to bring something else I think is important here. Okay. That I don't, I don't really hear anybody else talking about. Um, and I know this is what we do is. How much risk should you take? Is usually done by a risk tolerance questionnaire. And then that tells you what your asset allocation should be. And that's, it works really well, especially from a compliance standpoint. I think a really important number to know is what's the minimum amount of, so there's a couple of stages of life when you're working and you are, you know, to 
accumulate wealth outside of business and things like that. The key is long time frames, consistent investment, and take as much investment risk as possible and ignore. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get the hockey stick of compounding. Right. When you are retired, that's called, you know, in, you know we call that sowing, right? You're sowing the fields, mm-hmm. right? When you are retired, and I'll talk about the traditional sense, well, that is not sowing, that's reaping, right? That's harvesting. So when you are switching from sowing to harvesting, it's a very different dynamic, right? Investment risk, volatility is not necessarily your friend anymore. Right. It's actually the opposite. So I think it's a very healthy exercise to when you're figuring out your asset allocation is to understand once you've done the work of this is my ideal life, this I know it's feasible. One way to help make it sustainable are the buckets you know, and the structures that we've talked about. But another way is to understand what's the minimum effective dose of investment risk I need using the tools that we've talked about to feel comfortable that I can achieve this life, right? Because that's what harvesting is. It's not about optimization of statistics and markets. It's about optimizing your life while you harvest. So what's the minimum effective dose of investment risk I need to position myself to achieve this life? Now, this is going to freak you out because you're an opportunity cost guy from way at the beginning of this conversation. It could be no stocks at all if you're well overfunded financially. My, my right? heart just skipped a beat, but it's okay. Keep going. <laughs> it could be. Now, I'm not suggesting yeah. that you do that metaphorically saying you don't, you don't necessarily have to bury it into the ground, but some people want that. And I think it's important to do some analysis of what is the minimum risk? Because you know, what's the reasons to take risk? You take on uncertainty to position you hopefully to have you know, better returns or more money later on, right? That's the only reason, well, not, maybe not the only reason, but the one I'm referring to of taking investment risk. Well, if you've already defined your ideal life and we know you have ample assets and you're, you don't need to take investment risk. The only reason to take investment risk is to potentially have more money. Now that may help you give more money later on. It may help you if a major expense comes up that was totally unexpected, but it's important to know what that minimum effective dose of risk is and then make a conscious decision of how much you take above that to potentially protect you against inflation or protect you against, you know, major medical expenses. But nobody, I think that's critical to think about in this retirement conversation because mm-hmm. you don't want to take investment risk unnecessarily just because a questionnaire said you should or right. you can. And it's so easy to do, right? Because the longer you're saving for retirement, so you're working, you're putting this money in, you're all, you're focused on growth, and growth and that's the whole and so minimizing opportunity costs because you're trying to get grow it and then to all of a sudden flip that switch in your head and say okay now we're in a different phase it's a different now we're, now it's protection and harvesting and sustainability and yes we're leaving money on the table sure 
you could argue, one could argue, right, by having, let's say, less inequities, more, like even some people will say, Roger, to your cash cushion, that's ridiculous. Look, how you could have invested that, right? If you need money, just sell some of your equities. You know, like some people will, you know, they, they you know, they, well, I get, think we just look at point it what way. money is for. Money is a tool to achieve something greater. Right, right. right? And especially us math geeks, it's all about optimizing the numbers. Yeah. Sometimes we d- we can't get ourselves out of our spreadsheets to think about life. That's right. The point is, and most people don't care about spreadsheets. They care about their life and what they can create. Mm-hmm. And if sure. you are in, if you don't need an 80-20 equity bond mixed, you really could do fine with a 30% equity, 70% bond risk and have everything your life desires and not have to potentially go through bad markets that could blow up your plan, why the heck would you do it? Right. Unless you at least, the point is, I guess, you may still get to 80% equities in this example, but make the conscious choice knowing you don't have to. Right. Because you would be surprised how often, depending on the circumstance, the confidence levels can go up by taking less investment risk. Mm-hmm. The confidence levels of of achieving the cash flow, the spend the spending that you desire, actually the confidence level can go up by taking less risk because of the sequence of return. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's okay I, to do it, but just know what make the conscious decision and address. That's it. right. That's right. Yeah. I remember you. Yeah, I remember reading that part in your book. I forgot what example you use. I think you use some sort of analogy or something. But I, I do remember. Uh, I think of it like um, you know. Well, this is probably not the analogy, but about you know the hard part of doing this in practice. It's like being the designated driver at a party, right? When you go to a party and everybody starts drinking, they're all having a lot. Perceived to be having a lot more fun, a lot more investment returns than you, right? And so you feel sort of left out when markets are great. It sucks if you're used to embracing risk because you feel like a smuck mm-hmm. because you're just not getting returns. That's sort of when the party is in its good phase and you're the only sober one and those jokes really aren't that funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then towards the end of the night, you know, but you always know you're going to get home safely and be able to start the next day fine, depending on how the party goes. They may and they may not, mm-hmm. right? So it's a very difficult psychological thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that was the analogy in the book, but I think it's, it's, I like intentional decision-making. For sure. Uh, rather than, you know, it's sort of like long-term care when you think about that. We don't have to do, we don't have to do anything, but let's not do anything intentionally mm-hmm. rather than by default. Right. I don't take investment risk just because you've been comfortable with it for decades. Do it. Because you chose to after understanding how much you potentially needed to achieve the life that you want. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm still uh, giggling. I didn't mention this earlier. I'm still giggling a bit when you said Monte Carlo snob. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) 
<laughs> I've heard of, you know, a coffee snob. I've heard of, you know, the different, <laughs> but, but that's how I know we're in, we're in good company when you, when uh, you say, oh, I'm Monte Carlo style. It's like, all right, we can, I'm sure we could talk for hours now. <laughs> uh, so that, that's great, Rogers. I, I just have to mention that I, I was trying not to burst out laughing too much. Um, so, so let's, let, let's talk about uh, you a bit more. Uh, a lot of the listeners of the show, they are do-it-yourself investors and you've built a really great online community of do-it-yourself retirees uh, as part of your Rock Retirement Club, which is relevant to both Canadians and, and people in the US. And I'm sure you can speak to that. Uh, can you tell us more about the Rock Retirement Club that you've started, that you're running, as well as a bit more about your podcast, your book, and, and where can everyone learn from you? Yeah, so rogerwhitney.com is sort of the home of everything. And um, so we have the Retirement Answer Man podcast, which we've had for five years or so, just under five years. And it's just changed my life and just been a beautiful thing of being able to help speak into the life of others. And the Rock Retirement Club was born from that. So for me professionally, we have a practice where we're not trying to grow substantially. The, the point of the podcast is really to noodle on all of this stuff and, and figure out not just the hard stuff, but the softer side. And so the Rock Retirement Club is a club mainly from listeners to the show where together we walk a little bit of life together. So the, the, the motto of the club is walk with the wise and become wise. Um, and what we do in the club is hopefully we're building out world-class education on how to actually do retirement and help people connect the dots with all of this crazy stuff and so complicated. Uh, you know, and that's my role and my team's role is helping create the content and the education. And then empower people by giving them tools and resources to know what doc to focus on and how to take action on it. So we create world-class education. We empower people with tools and resources. And the last part really wasn't the, it wasn't really going to be factored in as part of it. And it's ended up being probably one of the biggest parts of it is inspiration from walking life with people that are, have the similar mindset. They're intentional, they're creative, they're kind, and they're all in the same season of life. And the amount of sharing and, and support of being able to ask somebody like if, you know, within a month of the club starting in January, uh, I had uh, coffee with someone who was driving through that was in the club. And they said, Roger, we had just retired and just being able to talk to so-and-so who is pretty much who we are, but they're three years into it. Um, just, and, and, and had the same spirit was it gave them affirmation that they weren't crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think being surrounded by like-minded people that are all on the same journey, but at different stages, uh, there's a lot of power in that because a lot of times it's very difficult to have these conversations either because the people around you are not as intentional or it's hard to share things with, your, you know, your social network. Uh, whereas it's easier to talk to somebody on an airplane, right? Right. You know, you're not, you're not integrated as much. That's been one of the most uh, beautiful things that I've seen. In fact, we're having, and this was all them drev. We're actually having the retirement rodeo roundup, like our first mini conference in Fort Worth. And it was all like, Hey Roger, let's do this. So I'm, I'm like, okay. 
And so we're having our first conference in a month or so, and it's That's all great. driven by them. So it's been a so it's all, it's all it's the whole Rock Retirement Club is going. You guys basically are yeah. There'll be about well, they're all fly, there's gonna be about thirty people flying in. There's about 260, okay. 70 people in the club as of now. We started mm-hmm. in January, uh, and about thirty people are flying in, and we're gonna That's have a whole great. day of content and, and fellowship. So that's great. That's, that's what the that, Rock Retirement Club is. That's that's so helpful. Yeah, I I, I can definitely speak to having others, talk, having the ability to talk to others that are in a similar situation than you, especially when it comes to retirement, is, is so helpful. I know I had, I, I think you might know them, Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution. Uh, you might have heard of them. They're in, you know involved in the FinCon community and all that. But I remember, yeah, when before I pulled that early retirement trigger, they they were already retired for I can't remember how long when, when I pulled it, but it was you know they they already had some experience in it, right? They already had the experience of quitting their job and you know handing in that resignation and stress testing everything to make sure you're not getting a heart attack the next day after you've submitted your resignation. And and I found that so so helpful. Uh, like just to talk to Christy and she you know it was almost like therapeutic. Uh, just to kind of make sure you've got your eyes dotted. T's crossed. And so, I mean, yeah, I love how you're doing that with the Rock Retirement Club. Well, and it's really hard in this space too, because there aren't very many safe places. Right. Right. You know, most financial education outside of shows like yours and, and you know, we're getting, it's getting better. Most financial education from the industry is always leading you to something, right? It's always leading you to a potential sell of something. Product, okay, yeah. the course, or something else, and so there's you know, and so that's hard, and it's also hard to have a safe place where you don't have trolls and people that aren't of the same spirit in communities that are free and things like that. So we call this, you know, I'm we have nothing that's sold in there. We have a, a code of conduct, and that we've never had to enforce as of yet. So it's a safe place to be able to have these discussions, knowing that there's no upsell of anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's great because yeah, there's definitely the uh, was it the, the retirement police and all <laughs> and all that. <laughs> so no, that's uh, that that's great. So I'm, I'm glad you did this because yeah, I, I don't know of any other serve um, membership like that uh, in Canada. Uh, definitely, I, I don't I haven't heard of. I don't know of any for this for this topic. For US, I, yeah, in general, yeah, yeah, it's very it's very rare. So. Um, no, so that, that's great. So, I mean, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. Thanks for creating this this community as well, uh, so that people won't feel like they're isolated, uh, you know, try, trying to figure this thing out themselves. Um, and yeah, it's um, it, it's been great having you on the show, Roger. Thank you so much. You bet. Um, it's been a blast talking with you. Thanks so much. I, it's been a. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, so I'm, I'm glad we, I finally got to, to talk to the guy that I've been learning so much from over the years on your podcast. So, so thank you so much, Roger. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to get your credit score checked for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. So just S-C-O-R-E. Your credit score can be the difference between getting approved for a loan and getting the lowest possible rate. And even if you aren't planning on taking out any loans, you really should check your credit score periodically just to make sure that nobody has gained unauthorized access to any of your financial accounts and is now working havoc on your credit score. So you can get the full report for free by going going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash score and that will take you directly to Borowell where you can enter the information and get all of that for free. All right, so I hope you enjoy that. I found it really helpful and a lot easier to do than all the other methods I've tried in the past when it comes to checking my credit score. Also, don't forget to get your free guide on the top ETFs in Canada if you haven't got it already. 
where I go into detail on what I invest in and why. And to get that, just sign up for a free savings account with the bank that I use, which is EQ Bank, where they have one of the highest interest rates that I've been able to find in Canada, sometimes even more than double what the other banks are offering, especially the major banks from what I've seen. Plus, you get free unlimited Interact e-transfers, which is super convenient for sending money and unlimited transactions with no fees. So to get the guide, just sign up for EQ Savings Plus account using the link Build Wealth Canada ca slash eq that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter e and the letter q and then send me any confirmation email that you get from them over to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and i'll email you the full guide all right so thanks again for supporting the show in that way and for tuning in and have a great week Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 